0: Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. Um, as I have often said on here, sometimes I have people on that I've known for many years, and some people I've had on that I've known for ten minutes. Um, but t- today I'm joined for someone that uh, by someone that I um, found actually I think in a LinkedIn somebody shared something um, uh, about a, a book that my guest has written, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute. I'm joined today by. A Byron Reese. Byron is a serial entrepreneur, an AI expert, a futurist, and the author of multiple books, including his most recent one, which is how I heard about him, is Rocks That Think. Um, Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. And uh, the title alone was like, oh, I got to meet this guy. So welcome. Thank you, Byron.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And you and I are both in Austin, Texas, uh, which is also uh, a rarity for the people that I have on that we're in the same locale. So I'm curious, you know, we have the questions that I sent to you and your team in advance and we'll go through those, but I'm curious about how you, um, you, you've written some very interesting books with some very interesting titles. And I'm curious about just from one writer to another, when you know you have a book idea, Like there, as you start to play with a a hypothesis or a thesis and you're like, ooh, I think I have something here. Is there a moment where you know that
1: or is it just something, you tell me about that. I don't know if my experience is similar to other people's but I uh, just start writing chapters of things that are interesting to me. So like this book, I uh, I watched a Werner Herzog documentary about the cave at Chauvet, the cave paintings. And I thought that's really fascinating. And then I, 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 anyway, so I do that. I just start writing uh, chapters and, and look to see if, if themes emerge and it, because uh, yeah. it, it, it develops as I write. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I found, um, I mean, this is the first book of yours that
0: I've read and I found that the reason I asked that is there is some, it's, it's, it's unique to find writers that write uniquely. You know, there's some great writers out there, but a lot of writers these days are more curators. Like I like Ryan Holiday stuff, but he's more a curator of other people's ideas. And Malcolm Gladwell's kind of a curator as well as uh, Brene Brown, even, you know, I can go down the list, but you have this very unique way of writing that um, it kind of reminds me of like Aldous Huxley more of his style of writing. It's, you know, if, if Aldous Huxley was going to write a book about the future, you know, it's very... Um, clever, you have clever turns of phrases. And I I find that a sign of uh, brilliance. So um, well, let's dig into the questions. The topic is mastering the future, which I say somewhat tongue-in-cheek because, you know, you can't really master the future. But the way that you think and the way that you write promotes some ideas that I think my listeners will be fascinated by. And um, we hear a lot um, of gloom and doom these days. Sometimes it's very justified. Um, and sometimes, though, you hear thinkers like yourself or Stephen Pinker, who and some others that have an optimistic view of the world. And so, my first question that we'll answer is, what makes you hopeful about the future of humanity
1: from where you, from where you're sitting? You know, I'm I, I don't think I'm reflexively an optimist. I'm not. I'm I, I'm not that guy that's like, oh, it'll turn out okay. Every cloud mm-hmm. has a silver line. like. Uh, you know, I've, 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 I've had to, mine goes up, my optimism goes on trial quite frequently. That said, mm-hmm. I'm an optimist for, for three reasons. The first, uh, is historical. If you look across the span of the last 10,000 years or the last thousand years or the last hundred years, you can't help but to notice a trend of things getting better. Yes. I don't know that a lot of people would disagree with that, uh, they might say it's stopping or something, but that's my first thing: is that history is kind of on uh, the the side of the optimist, I think. And then second, um, you know, there was a time, probably eighty eighty thousand years ago, when we hit a genetic bottleneck, a population bottleneck, and there were probably just a thousand mating pairs of humans left, like we were an endangered species. Mm-hmm. And now here we are, and you say, "Well, how did that happen?" Because we aren't the strongest or any of that. And it happened in, in large part because we learned a trick. We learned a trick of how to magnify what we're able to do. And we call that trick technology. So even though your body only has a hundred Watts of power, we figured out how to build a world where you use an additional 10,000 Watts. Right. At your and that's so I think technology will continue to get better. I think that's my second thing. Um, and, and I don't know, that's, that is, yeah, the technology will will continue to get better to the point when we know everything, and I think we're pretty far away from that. And the third one is uh, the people are basically good. Most everybody are basically good, and um, and I deeply believe that. I, in fact, I'll tell you a story that just happened to me, which is right. I um, I sold something on eBay, and I boxed it, and then I double boxed it, then I triple boxed it, and uh, and I wrapped it carefully, and I shipped it. And the person who got it opened it all up and then filed a claim against me and said, I didn't send them the item. I just packed a box with a brick in it. Now, I didn't pack a box with a brick in it. Okay. Yeah, I didn't okay. the <laughs> item that they bought. But um, eBay would be like, well, you know, can't prove you delivered it. We're going to side with them. And I got to thinking, you know, consider how rare that is. If even 5% of people did that, and you couldn't have credit cards anymore. Like, right. Uh, it, the fact that you can kind of deal with people knowing that most of the time there are more people who want to create than destroy. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people are good and want to want to help other people. We're social species. So things have been getting better. We am wrapping up here. Our, okay. our historical situation has been that uh, one of scarcity. There's never been enough of the good stuff for everybody. Not enough food for everybody, not enough medicine, not enough leisure time, not enough education. And so some people get it and some people don't, and that's like this world. But uh, we now we make enough food for everybody. Now we don't get it to everybody, but mm-hmm. you know we we uh, we we can achieve. I'm I'm really fascinated by utopias. I read a, a lot of utopian literature just to see what do people regard as right the ideal world. And when you go back to the 1700s, which is when it all began. Mm-hmm. Um, they had these crazy ideas, like, uh, wouldn't it be great if you got to pick your own rulers instead of having kings? And wouldn't it be great if you could have whatever religion you wanted? Or if if uh, you could marry the person of your choosing? Or if we had legal equality between the sexes? Or we had public education for everybody? All these things that, you know what, we're on our way to, to, to delivering on those. And then we get to come up with a whole nother list of of things until one day I think we're going to wake up in a world we can't actually imagine much better than, than it is and yeah. and then the last thing I'll say is and then I hope you know I look up in the sky it sure looks like we live in a universe that has got plenty of room yeah I would love yeah. to see a billion people on a billion planets and, and yeah. I think that's our destiny in our future wow that's so fascinating
0: yeah, I um, I think it's I think one of the things as a as a history nerd is that you mentioned like food um, or even medicine. Uh, those were for year for th- hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, were really related more to, you know, the te- the the inadequacies of technology. And so, where I th- what's interesting and to me now is that we have uh, so we have distribution issues more than we have production issues. And that those distribution issues are almost always related to power structures, that it seems like, is that um, if you have an authoritarian um, uh, government, um, they are using those, those things um, as uh, tools or weapons uh, related to, you know, how they maintain power, which is um, its own problem, but it's way different than a scarcity issue. Um, I am not... An optimist, either generally speaking, I would refer to myself as a somewhat paradoxically as a uh, optimistic pessimist or a hopeful pessimist. In that, I think we have to deal with the fact that there's a lot of things that aren't good in the world right now, but also it's misappropriated as a quote of Martin Luther King Jr.'s. But the light, the you know, the arc of time is long, but bends towards justice. And um, what I'm so I'm what I'm most hopeful about is is that people are waking up to understanding that, especially in developed nations, that that the existential angst is uh, unnecessary. And when you just unpack this a little bit about how much is reliant on the perpetuation of existential angst, you know, consumer-based economies, as an example, or uh, what I call the dopamine industry, which is, you know, streaming, porn things like that it's uh, that those were all designed to perpetuate the ex- existential angst but you look at the volume of people that is exponentially meditating or practicing some sort of consciousness practice it's it's an amazing hockey stick of of growth and you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't even talk about emotions in business, but now you hear about co- consciousness in business and conscious business practices and heart-based leadership from senior, senior people, not from, you know, some woo-woo guru that they brought in. And I think that's that shows that, and, and, and kind of the final thought for this question is, for every level of consciousness that you reach, you have to recalibrate your systems And I think what we're seeing now is a recalibration of systems. I think like the great resignation or what I call the great reprioritization is an example of that is we're recalibrating our systems to match our new level of consciousness and that the new gap isn't going to be about income. It's going to be about who's operating at low consciousness and who's operating at a higher consciousness level. And I use consciousness in the more of the uh, David Hawkins and Sam Harris version, not like, you know, Mariana Williamson. Uh, I say it more from a scientific perspective. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is uh, when you started talking about food, I think about the most depressing fact I know is that uh, nearly 80% of all hungry people in the world uh, live in countries that are net food exporters. So it's not a distribution problem. And it's not usually even an authoritarian problem. It's just, you, you don't starve to death in the modern world because you have no food. You starve to death because you have no money. And yeah, the, the yeah. countries can sell the food abroad. It's right. not a conspiracy. They can just get more money for it elsewhere right. than they afford to pay. And yeah. that's why, with the exception of sub-Saharan Africa, which really does have uh, um, infrastructure problems about it, but yeah. the hungry people in the rest of the world are living in places that, see, we don't have a problem with, uh, with food. We have a problem with, with our hearts. Yes. Well said. Well said. Well, kind of going into
0: that is the second question is you can think of mindset or heart set, if you will, is um, what do you think is the current mindset or thinking that is a greatest threat to the future? What is a prevailing uh, paradigm that
1: is actually a threat to the future? I would, I would uh, put at the very top of that list. Uh, okay, I just gave this you know, um, soliloquy about how this utopia is possible. Right. The one, the two things that could keep it from happening are, uh, one, some big rocket in the planet killing us all, but can't do anything about that. Uh, but the second one is, is if people uh, don't believe it, if they're, if they, you see, people think optimism is like the rose-colored glasses view, but it really isn't. It's the hard work view. It says, you know what? We can build a better world, but it's going to be a lot of work the pessimist view is not well, why bother? Like you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. So yeah. I think it's this, uh, this, um, malaise mm-hmm. that I, you hate to put it on any one thing, but I, it has to be something related to this kind of 24 hour news cycle of, bad and bad and bad and bad there's something called black cloud syndrome where people overestimate the odds of something bad happening to them like getting murdered or something why because they just see it constantly 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 and so I um I have a lot of confidence in this uh generation that's coming up uh I think they uh they're they're very driven by uh, values they all kind of have a you know their mission driven all these wonderful things Mm -hmm. but if they don't uh, they're like, why bother? If they, yeah. if they give up, like I can never, i never own a home and I'm never going to have a family. I'm right. never going to, like, that is not a, a formula for building a, a utopian society or even something that approaches utopia.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I agree with you and hope is one of those funny words because it, it's so highly contextual, but um in order to design the future you have to believe in a future you know that's the curse of um have somebody, it was as myself who for years struggled with depression is depression robs you of the vision of the future mm-hmm. um, and that's one of its things it's a thief of it's a thief of current joy and future joy as well and i and i i also so my answer to that is 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 kind of related um, one is is what I call collective the collective narcissism, and collective narcissism is my term for low conscious people in power um, that perpetuate those power structures that harm toward, with great with that harm others. And the thing about it is they do not give that power away. It, they and that's the to me that's the the threat of like the mindset of election deniers as an example. Um, and I view, you know, I, I have many, many policy differences with Democrats, but I have reality differences with Republicans. Mm. And because of, of that, and um, there's a collective narcissism that still exists in the business world, um, that I think is a, a, a strong remnant of uh, Milton Friedman's influence on shareholder value. Again, I'm a capitalist, but I think that was very damaging to advancing humanity in a lot of ways, of uh, emphasizing value as opposed to values. Um, and there are many, many successful businesses, uh, Patagonia being one of them, that show that you don't have to do it that way. So that's collective narcissism. Related to that is this threat I've re- I've had people on and I've written about it at length is Christian nationalism. Because when you give people that are extremist in their religious views positions of power, they will use it to harm other people. It's an, it's an inevitable descent into madness. And um, that's why I think these next few, at least in the United States, next few election cycles are are critical, in the sense that we need to be able to. Uh, sh- we, we I'm not a populist, but I do believe we need to be, we need to show the voice uh, of what we actually believe in as a, as a society. I I often say that moderate, reasonable people are the most are the largest unrepresented group in the United States, and so I think that. Christian nationalism in the form of US government in particular could do, could do um, regressive damage to the country. And I don't say that with any ideological bent. It's more of this is what happens when you give mentally ill people power. Um, and, and history is full of examples of that in, in my view. I was thinking of those
1: news shows. Reaction, any reaction to that before we go on to the next question? I I, I was recalling an article that, um, and that's why I paused as I was trying to think of the citation, but it was basically saying, we aren't really getting more polarized, uh, even though you think that, even though it seems that way, what's happening is the people on the extremes are getting noisier and everybody in the middle is just like quiet. (laughs) (laughs) I don't wanna get involved in that. and so it gives that illusion that, you know, I don't, I, I, I think about like all that compared to like my reality living in a neighborhood where I know all my neighbors and they, uh, you know, they have all different beliefs, they are all different backgrounds and all of that. And you know what, we all get along just fine. And when we don't, it's, you know, about when you put your trash cans out at night and stuff like yeah. that, <laughs> um, to somehow feel like they are the enemy or something. Uh, right. I. I yeah, I find most people are reason, like you just said the the people um, are the the unrepresented. Yeah, uh. yeah, and I think that um,
0: you know when we that the that, that representation now is more um, like one of my mantras for in business is social pressure and market pressure are the same thing now. Um, you know where we especially as you mentioned this next generation, you know millennials and Zoomers they they are much more values oriented than value oriented. And I think that that that's the kind of pressure. Um, and you see that in business like here in Texas a few years ago when the, the trans bathroom bill was working its way through subcommittee. And most people don't know this, but it got killed there by the Texas Auto Dealers Association. They basically told the Republicans, if you continue this, we'll pull all of our donate, all of our funding. And that Killed it, and that was an that was social pressure and economic pressure and market pressure all working together, which is, um, you know, I think that's a good thing when that happens. A different kind of lobbying, I guess you could say. Um, so, well, as we, I mean, as we think about this, we think about the the future. Back to this idea of of mastering the future. What would be your most surprising prediction of the future? Um, what would be something that you would you that would be, yeah, just as I asked it, what would be a surprising prediction from you?
1: A surprising it's a surprise to me or it would be to other people?
0: Um uh, both. You can answer that either way.
1: Well, uh, it's probably uh, not a surprise to you if you're thinking of it. So no, probably- but it's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it never occurred to me that's what was gonna happen. Yeah. Uh, well, I start I was gonna start to say that I think. In, in this world full of people worried about us running out of jobs, uh, I think we have a our biggest problem is going to be, there are not going to be enough people to do the things that uh, we know how to do. Right. And uh, I've, I've written about that extensively, but really, I, I think I'm going to go with the different one, which is, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm an AI artificial intelligence person. I've, I've written yep. books about it and I used to host this podcast on it. And I loved it because uh, the, the big Big, a lot of the big people were, are still alive, right? It's such a young thing. And I could get right. these people on the show that were uh, just, you know, I just bask in their knowledge. And in artificial intelligence, there's two separate ideas that always get mixed up, but they're two different things. Sometimes when we say artificial intelligence. Uh, we mean this thing we know how to do, which really we should call narrow artificial intelligence. It's a kind of technology that um, it's very simple. Actually, you take a bunch of data about the past and you look in it for patterns. Use those patterns to predict the future, and it's kind of slow and laborious because you have to do one thing at a time. But that's how your spam filter works. That's how your car is routed through traffic and all of that. We know how to do that technology, and that's what 99% of the money is. spent on but nobody's afraid of it i mean they're afraid what might do to jobs or something but they're not afraid that like the spam filter is going to take over and then there's this other thing called general intelligence and that's uh that's what you see in the movies right that's uh c3po from star wars that's commander data from star trek and that's an ai that can do what whatever we can do it's like creative and that is something we don't know how to build and um and so I had all these guests on my show and there's a hundred percent of the people would say, we don't, we, we don't know how to build that. Um, but that's the one when people say, you know, it's an existential risk. That's what they're talking about. So I would have these people on my show and I would ask them, do you believe it's possible to create general intelligence? And 97 out of a hundred, literally, mm-hmm. uh, of course. Um, and, and, uh, and I'm one of the three. I think it's impossible. I'm not one of the three. I agree with the three. Mm-hmm. I think it's impossible because because if you when I say to the 97, well, why we don't know how to do it, and they're like, well, machines can have general intelligence because we're machines with general intelligence, and that's the core belief that under mm-hmm. undergirds it is that people are machines, and it is true that if people are machines, then someday we'll build a mechanical person and. It will get better and better. But if people are not machines,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and you don't have to like go straight to like the soul or something, there's a lot. You've got the mind, you've got the brain we don't understand, it gives rise to the mind, and the mind somehow uh has this baby, It's the source of this thing we call consciousness, which is your experience of the universe. You you can feel warmth, but a thermometer can only measure temperature. And mm-hmm. so I actually don't believe we can build general intelligence because I think that we are not machines. And therefore, there are things that we can do that no machine will ever be able to do. And, and yeah. um, so that's my most surprising belief. Is yeah. that After, you know, on the patent holder and all of that, yeah, right, right. I don't believe that uh, general intelligence is possible.
0: Yeah, I think that's so interesting, because, you know, the technology, and I love how you started off the the um the conversation about the um exponential um multiplier that technology brings to humans whether that's you know calculation power or 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 strength power or whatever um there's no reason to me that that's not going to continue to be the same yes are we going to see more like robots making hamburgers sure and i think what we're going to see is and you would know this a million times more than I would, but I think you're going to see as a result of AI and greater technology, greater automation, you're going to see the people that are going to be treated less like machines, um, that they're going to be in roles that um, that a machine could not do related to what you said around general intelligence, um, like truly relating, um, truly uh, un, you know, being able to read the room, as it were, read energy, you know, that's another trait of, of, of humans that is mammalian, I think, in its roots that mammals can do that with each other, you know, they do it all the time, and we're just, we, we can do the same thing if we just pay attention, um, but I think what I'm, what I would say is the most surprising prediction about the future, and I'm not really a futurist, um, but is, I think that we're not that far away, maybe and and maybe in our lifetime, you and I are a similar age. Uh, in our lifetime, where there will be they will be able to quantify uh, consciousness. Um, you know, the work that Jill Bolt Taylor has done with her uh, whole brain living and um, uh, some uh, some other, you know, I could just do a bunch of name dropping, but there's this sort of breakthrough field. It still hasn't proven per se, I mean, it's science, but you know, so everything's everything is iterative. But I think that once we understand that we that consciousness is part of who we are, um, it's why I've said somewhat tongue in cheek that it, both uh, atheists and religious people are going to be disappointed to find out that we are God, <laughs> you know, and that that when we find out that consciousness is, is real, it's a real element, a real part of the human experience then we start to realize then which of our suffering is optional. And I think that's the most empowering thing a human can arrive at. One of the most empowering, empowering things is, Oh, this is optional suffering. I am choosing it. And if you can, if you, if you're choosing it, then you can begin to look at power structures and you know go back to what I said about, you know, power dynamics. But to me, that's the hopefulness um, that's out there is and it's all available. I mean, you can go, Listen to Sam Harris's uh Waking Up episodes or or, or um, Insight Timer, you know, Jack Cornfield's app. I mean, there's so many different places to go to learn mindfulness has nothing to do with
1: spirituality. That's powerful to me. Um, are you using consciousness there in its actual um meaning that your experience of the universe versus um is that, uh, how how are you using uh, consciousness? Here? Yeah, so
0: I, I think it is the experience of the universe. I am using it in a very not in a very secular way. I would use that term more than you know scientific. Is that that there seems to be and David Hawkins wrote about this at length, um, and Ken Wilber, which are kind of you know Ken's kind of a fringe guy, but that there seems to be this uh, spectrum of awareness. And, um, and so as you raise your spectrum of, as you go up the spectrum of awareness and Hawkins had a, a shame at the b- bottom and enlightenment at the top with courage in the middle, your view of the world, your paradigm of the world begins to change. And this thing that is the way you experience the world, um, it begins to change. Um, and, uh, and I think it boils down to, you know, like Joe Bolt Taylor's work or some, you know, neuro, some really hardcore, like scientists, atheists that have had near-death experiences that kind of all report the same thing in those in near-death experiences, that, that, that there's this place in the human mind that we can go to, you know, people that do plant medicine kind of report some of this too. So there's a, pl- I, I, I think consciousness is a place in the mind, uh, as opposed to something out there. Um, in
1: my, and that's my view. I wrote a book on whether computers could ever be conscious, but I I mean the word in its purely scientific uh, sense. I mean, it is uh, you know the 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 ability to have a first person experience of the of the world, and and the reason yeah. that uh, it used to be anathema to discuss it in scientific circles, and now it isn't. Right. But um, the reason it was is not because. Reason is vexing is not because we don't know how it is that matter can have an experience. There's right. a lot of things science doesn't know, and, and right, you know, right. oh, we'll get to that. The reason yeah. <laughs> is, is nothing in uh, physics uh, explains how matter can have an experience of something. I mean, you're made of the same elements that that thermometer is made of. It right. feels nothing. You know, it's dead right. chicken, and you're you feel warmth. Yes. Um, and whatever yeah. that difference is, that, that that's the yes magic. But uh, other people use the word to be like, "Oh, I want to reach a higher plane of consciousness." But that's I, like I said, I wrote a book about if computers, yeah, uh, achieve it just in that narrow scientific. Yeah, yeah, And
0: yeah. I, I, don't, I don't even think it's narrow as much as it's just specific to what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think I think both could be true at the same time. Both probably are true at the same time. Um, And, uh, you know, I think of the things like you take the the neocortex and uh, that we have this ability as humans that we have several abilities that other creatures don't have that that we're aware of. Like, for example, that we can sort of witness our own evolution. We can watch our thoughts. We can watch our emotions when it does not appear that other creatures can do that. Um, And there's a whole list of things that I wrote about a while, a few weeks ago that are like that. My only point to that is there's some intentionality there. There's some designed thinking there. So there's a reason for it. And I think part of it is, is to two things. One is to discover your own uniqueness first. And so that you can see the connectedness. You know, that's what, you know, the, the phrase namaste is, is about, essentially. And imagine that. I mean, that's utopia. When you know your own value and worth and you see the value and worth of others, we would be a lot more kind to each other um, if that was the case, which is why I say what I'm most hopeful about is the elevation of consciousness, both in your term and in mine. And that's that's pretty cool. So any final thoughts before I hit the pause button?
1: No, no, I um, have a lot to think about. Yes, and thank you for that. This is, a, I knew
0: without meeting you, it would be fascinating. And indeed, I was right. I will uh, link to your book, um and your author page in the uh show notes
1: and actually let me interrupt you i, I did okay. little, uh, coming out of what you just said which is uh this book and this isn't like a plug for the book the book is about how people are different than than animals like that's what this book is about right. and the thing that always that got me thinking is where where the, we're like aliens to, compared to animals, right? Like, right. where's where where are the species that are coming up behind us? Like they're just in the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and that's what I put in the book. Where are the Bronze Age beavers? Where are the right. pre-industrial platypus? But um, and and I too put a list of things I think are different. But to me, the the difference that I thought was material, and that's what this book is about, right. is ability to see the future. Yes. Imagine the future. Animals yes. live in the perpetual present. But yes. What what we pay for is we know we're going to die, and they yes. don't. Know we're
0: die. And they don't. Yeah, I had, I had that. There were ten things that I deduced, and as I re, as I read your book, oh, uh, yeah. I was like, "Oh, that's affirming." I always like it when people waste way more credentialed and smarter than me. You know, I feel I can find some alignment. That's uh, that's
1: that's so all, all of it to say <laughs> that's uh, that's I think the cool question is like. Why are we so different than yeah. us, uh, everything else on this planet? Why, and why is there just one of us? Why yes. aren't there six intelligence right. And if indeed we are different, why do we treat each other like animals still sometimes? So uh,
0: we will never that's run out of questions. What?
1: Um, I've got a big countdown clock on my mantle. It says 24 and there's so many days until I have to turn this next book in. And that's what that book's like. about.
0: Ah, well, serendipity. All right, my friend, thank you so much for the conversation.